our teaching text, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 and 29. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, and your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immortality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead, and then all the ch churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I'll say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any, of, any other burden on you except to hold, to, that, to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. Mm -hmm. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them into pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give you the one, uh, that one, the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. All right. Uh, we are in the Lenten season. And so Lent draws its inspiration from 40 days uh, that Jesus spent in the desert. And the gospels show us that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil after his baptism. And for 40 days, he prayed and he fasted. Uh, he resisted Satan's temptations and then went to Galilee to begin his public ministry. And in this season, uh, what we wanted to do is uh, partake in the practices of prayer, fasting, and sacrificial giving uh, to help increase our reliance on and devotion to Jesus. And this is an intentional time, really, to empty ourselves of distractions from overindulgences of possessions, forgetfulness, and food to open up ourselves to be filled with more of God. And as we are filled with more of him during Lent, our relationship with him deepens and it gives meaning to our fasting and it strengthens our call to sacrificially give what the Lord has given us. And what I particularly want to insert here uh, in this particular um, moment uh, that we're in is that we, the reason why we do this is that we do this for love. We don't, we don't do this to gain some sort of uh, blessing necessarily or, or to gain more favor. We do this because we love Jesus. To unite us really to the only one who is able to satisfy our deepest longings. We do this for the only one uh, that we pledge our whole lives and our allegiances to. And he is the love of our lives, and we desire more of him. That's, right. That's the whole reason why we pray and why we fast. And so as a community, what we want to do is practice repentance of sin, fast from something that we typically indulge in. And as we go into this next week, uh, we want to encourage you to fast one meal 
out of one day. Okay, and and this past week was a week to fast from sweets that every time um, I hope that every time you had the hankering for a sweet this last week that you would that instead you would say, Jesus, I need you. Right. And so then in this week that is coming up, that you would pick a day and that you would pick a particular meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch or dinner, and that you would step into that particular time, not as a time to just say, I'm not going to eat. But it would be a time that you say, I'm not going to eat and I'm going to seek the Lord instead. Do it uh, by yourself, do it with friends or do it with family. The point is that you would do it and that you would seek the Lord. And then as you do that, that you would contend for renewal, renewal of your heart, renewal in the life of Ecclesia City, renewal for the city of Dallas, and that you would just say, Jesus, we need you to come and renew us and renew our love for you. And so what I want to do is I want to implore you, challenge you, exhort you, motivate you, and love you into participation, okay? And so as we go through Lent, uh, we've been going through a series called Abiding uh, with Zealous Devotion or Abiding with God with Zealous Devotion and studying God's messages to the churches, uh, to the seven churches that are found in Revelation chapters two and three. And today we're going to finish chapter two. OK, and so this is week four. And in four weeks, we have gone through one chapter. Wow. Keep that in mind. Okay, And so we will end this series or this time celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus on Easter. And I'm really excited for for Easter. And so our hopes for this season as we go through this series is number one, that we would abide in a way that allows us to hear the voice of the Lord and take the next step of obedience. And number two, that we engage in a way that deepens our relationship with God, resulting in a zealous devotion to him and his kingdom. And I hope that these two things have been true thus far. Now, every week I said, uh, and I'm going to continue to say this until we're through. uh, I want to remind you of who wrote Revelation and why we're studying the churches. Revelation was written by... John, and he was in uh, he was in prison on the island of Patmos. Patmos. That's right, and he was put onto prison uh, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, as he says in verse nine. Uh, it is important to note this uh, in this particular time, and I'll and I'll mention it a little bit later. That the emperor during this time is an emperor named Domitian, um, and Emperor Domitian is is a very interesting character. That at the uh, what I'll insert here is that um, John was put onto Patmos because, as church history would say, he was he was he wasn't silent about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and who Jesus was and what he came to do and what was being established. Christianity was now uh, taken root in much of the Roman Empire. Domitian didn't like it and considered John to be one of the last remaining disciples who physically saw Jesus. And he put John on the Isle of Patmos, an island that was supposed to be isolated. Yet somehow the message of revelation got off of the island of Patmos and is now making its way through the churches. And now we are in the city today. We're going to be in the city of Thyatira. 
And so the reason why we're entering into a time to look at and study the seven churches in Revelation is that scripture has something to say about where we find ourselves today. And I believe the motives with which John wrote are relevant for today. So John has two motives for writing Revelation. One, John wrote Revelation to remind those who have placed their faith in Jesus of the true cosmic order that secures them in all society. Much like today, the people of God were hard-pressed to reconcile on one hand. The kingdom has come. The kingdom of God has come, and it's a kingdom of peace where God reigns over sin, over Satan, and over history, that he is worthy to be followed and trusted. Yet on the other hand, the reality that the forces of evil continue to exist, dominate culture, and even flourish all while believers were being oppressed to varying degrees. So there was these two uh, hands, if you will, these two sides of this balance. And so the question at the forefront of people's minds and in, 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 in within these seven churches or within these seven cities was how did the truths of the gospel relate practically and specifically to the difficult cultural, social, political, and economic realities of our day? It's the same question we're asking today. How is the gospel relevant to the, the environment, the culture that we live in today? And so a phrase that I want you to remember and we keep repeating each week is not all is like what it seems. Remember that phrase, meaning we must not only take what is happening at face value, but we also need to see that there is a cosmic uh, order and war at play, even when it may not be so glaringly obvious. And so second, John wrote Revelation to encourage believers to persevere and not give in to the siren call of idolatry. Now, let me remind you of a few things we read in John chapter one. I mean, sorry, Revelation one. Uh, that a voice like a trumpet called out to John, which instructed him to write down what you see. And that phrase is important because this letter is primarily about what John saw and not the order in which the events took place. So when he turned around to see who was speaking to him, who was calling to him like the voice of a trumpet, John gets the revelation that it was Jesus who was speaking to him. And this book is primarily about what verse one of, of Revelation one states, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to fully disclose himself. So the word revelation here is the word apocalypsis which means something that is fully known, a full disclosure. So it doesn't mean end times or end time events. It means full disclosure. So when applied to the second reason why John wrote Revelation is to remain consistent at the end or the seemingly end with what scripture has been saying this entire time for centuries and continues to say to us today. Don't respond to the call of idolatry. Instead, idolatry is heinous before God because Jesus is the first, the last, the living one who was dead and now look, is alive forever and ever and holds the keys of death and Hades and he alone is to be worshiped. That's right. And 
John is writing to not give in to idolatry, but see and know that Jesus is the lamb that was slain through whom the world was created, uh, through whom the world will be consummated, to whom all glory, honor, and power belongs, and no one else is worthy to take that place. So now let's talk about the city of Thyatira. Here we go. Ready? Uh, Not much is known about Thyatira which makes it more difficult to understand Jesus's words to the church in light of the cultural, political, and social context of the city. What we do know is that Thyatira was the center of worship for Apollo, who was God over many things. Like if you look this up, they literally have a whole list of things that he is God over, but particularly he was known as the God of sunlight and the patron God of guilds or trade societies. And we're gonna talk about that more in a little bit. Think of secret societies even, or think about the Writer's Guild. It's a group of people who are dedicated to writing books, poems, or whatever, but it's a group of people that are dedicated to a particular trade, and Apollo was known as the god of that particular society, okay? So in Roman culture, It was believed that the emperor was the incarnation of Apollo because Apollo was the son of Zeus, god of the gods, and both Apollo and the emperor were known as, quote, the son of God. Emperor Domitian, who is a very interesting character, and if this doesn't tell you how interesting he is, uh, I don't know what will. He was the emperor during John's day, who, when he wrote Revelation, Emperor Domitian named his own son, Son of God. And it is interesting to know that that Domitian's son's face was put on the uh, coins of, of the day, and what he was depicted as was the son of God and he was represented on these coins holding seven stars. So something relevant about Thyatira is that it was also the center of marketing and manufacturing of the Roman province in Asia. One particular insight we have about Thyatira is if you read Acts 16, 14, uh, there was a woman from the city of Thyatira and her name was Lydia. And Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth. And then we come to know, she came to know and believe in Jesus through Paul's preaching in the gospel, uh, uh, preaching the gospel in the city of Philippi. So it was, it was believed that she was in the city of Philippi, basically selling her purple cloth that came from Thyatira. Thyatira was famous for manufacturing clothes, dyes, pottery, leather, baking, shoemaking, and in particular, bronze smiths, among many other trades. And in fact, the city had a prominent culture of belonging to these guilds or these societies, uh, something again to the effect of a social club, where the members of these societies would gather according to their trade 
and being a part of these guilds meant that much financial support was giving was given to one another for their trade and their business and not belonging to to a guild meant that there would be significant financial hardship or loss that they would experience and as if that wasn't enough this was a problem or could be a problem for Christians because being a part of the guilds and societies meant that you would most likely be tied up to worshiping Apollo and the various gods these societies gathered under and pledge allegiances to. They would say, Apollo, please bless us as we participate in, in uh, manufacturing bronze. And, and so they would worship him. And William Barclay has this to say in his book, Letters to the Seven Churches, uh, about these gatherings. And he says, this is William Barclay, by the way. He says, these trades guilds had common meals together. The meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation and an offering to the gods. It was, in fact, the heathen grace or the way that heathens would pray before and after a meal. Could a Christian join in on a ceremony like that? Still further, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. The token part of an animal would be offered on the altar. The meat of it would be given to the worshiper to make a feast for the members of his trade guild. Could a Christian sit and eat meat, which had been offered to idols? Could he participate in a meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollo or Artemis of Thrymnus, the local god? Still further, excuse me, this trade guild feast not, not infrequently de- degenerated into carousels where drunkenness and immorality were the order of the day. Could a Christian participate in a feast where drunkenness and fornication were the accepted thing? So let's get into the church of Thyatira. Jesus shows up and he represents himself by identifying aspects of the revelation that John gets of Jesus. When we looked at Ephesus, when we looked at Smyrna, when we looked at um, uh, Pergamum, we saw that Jesus always presents himself with the phrase from what John saw from the very beginning. Mm. And this is no different. In John 1.13, for example, John saw someone like the Son of Man, whose, in verses 14 and 15, eyes were like blazing fire, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace. And so in 2, 18 and 19, Jesus presents himself and he says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God. Whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than what you did at first. And so what Jesus here is, is he's making himself known as the one who is over Thyatira. He's watching, he's walking, and not as the son of an earthly emperor, but as the son of the most high God. He is also showing up in a similar way that Apollo would have showed up, who is many times depicted as having eyes of fire and sunlight around him. 
and the burnished bronze is Jesus identifying with Thyatira's prominent resource trade and most likely watching and walking among the various guilds or societies that were prominent in the city, which is why his feet were like burnished bronze. And now there's much to be said about this, but what I sense that the Holy Spirit was wanting me to highlight and point out is that Jesus here is showing up, you ready, like a jealous lover. Now, before you get put off by me identifying Jesus as jealous, and before you get put off by the fact that he is a jealous lover, because you may have some experience with maybe a person that was jealous over you, uh, uh, where the girl or guy you were dating exhibited jealousy to control and manipulate, let me reform your thinking of Jesus' jealousy. Jesus' jealousy is not one that is based on insecurity. In scripture, we're told that God is a jealous God because he is unconditionally loving. He is faithful. He is gracious. He's compassionate and slow to anger. And what every message uh, to each of the churches has in common is Jesus's knowledge of what is happening at the church because he is intimately familiar with not just their actions, but the condition of their hearts. And so man's jealousy is a result of insecurity and speculation about the perception of people's actions. God is not jealous like we are. God is righteously jealous because he knows that we are actually growing in infatuation and consideration of loves that otherwise do not satisfy. In fact, he says this phrase over and over to each of the churches. He says, I know. In Thyatira's case, he knows their deeds, their love and faith, service and perseverance, that they are now doing more than what they did at first. Thyatira, in other words, is faithfully enduring and living a life that is devoted and committed to Jesus. And unlike Ephesus, whose love grew cold with the more that they did, Thyatira's love and maturity have only grown. And Jesus sees them and he walks among them And he says, I know. And then there are two words that I also believe that the Holy Spirit is wanting to give us today. So first is that Jesus shows up as a jealous lover. Second, here are two words. They've come up for me several times in the last six months through various conversations with pastors and friends. And the words are resonance and dissonance. And I'm going to ask Lauren if you could help me um, on the piano real quick, just to illustrate resonance and dissonance, just so that you can kind of get a picture uh, for the various learning styles that are in the room. So resonance, dissonance, resonance, dissonance. Thank you. Resonance, is that we may be different. If you, if you, uh, I, I, I'm going to try to explain this a little bit more, but resonance, if you noticed, or if you looked at, or if you paid attention, uh, there are different uh, notes that make up a chord. And when those chords are in resonance, it sounds beautiful. 
you're agreeing, you're vibing, and you're on the same page. Uh, 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 from a physics point of view, they, they are uh, on the same vibration uh, scale and vibrating similarly, and that's why it creates resonance. Dissonance is where we're crashing and disagreeing and moving in opposite directions that causes there to be this, ah, that's not particularly right there. And what Jesus is doing at Thyatira is that he's finding resonance and he's finding dissonance. After commending their love, works, and endurance or their resonance, he particularly finds dissonance And he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servant into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely because they repent of her ways unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except that you hold on to what you have until I come. The dissonance that exists is that the love of his life is tolerating another. That other is leading the love of his life into the same places that Pergamum is being led into, namely idolatry and sexual immorality. The other is doing so by disguising as a prophet or being godly, but is actually leading into complacency and tolerance. And Jesus specifically identifies this other person as Jezebel. Now, what he's saying essentially is that, and this is, this is a phrase that Mel, uh, when she was doing the, the artwork, she said, this is what inspired me. And, and uh, she said, Jezzy's gotcha. <laughs> and so this is where we enter into things are not at all like what they seem. There's another mention of Jezebel, uh, or let me rephrase that. There is no other mention of Jezebel outside of Jezebel's account other than here in Revelation. Jezebel is found in 1st and 2nd Kings, and she was a pagan who married Ahab, king of Israel. Okay, And King Ahab is described as the king who did more to arouse God's anger than any other king in the history of Israel. And and the reason for that is because he allowed himself to be influenced by Jezebel to have other gods before Yahweh, namely Baal and Asherah. And what Jezebel did is that she came in and she commissioned and financed 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah while she was murdering all of Yahweh's prophets. She was strong. She was ruthless and prideful, who masked lies as truth. 
And so Jesus here pulls no punches and he calls out Thyatira's unfaithfulness or their dissonance by revealing that they are getting in bed, i.e. committing adultery with Jezebel, who is also later on called a messenger of Satan because she's revealing Satan's so-called secrets. And so what does the jealous lover say? He says, I will cause you to suffer intensely and the children that are born to you, I will strike dead. Now, before you go into thinking that these are physical children, what he is saying is that he is going to cause you to suffer intensely and the fruit of what comes out of your dissonance, of your disobedience is also going to suffer and I will destroy that fruit. Now, before you, your mind goes into believing that God is unjust, I'm going to try to put it into more human terms. Imagine your significant other, for those of you married, your spouse, for those of you that are not a person that you are in love with, leading maybe towards marriage. Imagine your significant other who is pursuing you, is loving you, being seemingly faithful to you. They buy you amazing gifts on your birthday. They remember the important dates of your life. They know what makes you happy and angry and even knows the freckles that you have in those places that are not otherwise seen by others. Yet you know also that over here at work or in the neighborhood or in the apartment complex that you live in, they are seeking out the attention of another. They are getting to know the secrets of this other person. They tolerate their advances and answer their texts and phone calls. Then you find that they are at various times uh, in bed with this person. There is resonance and there is dissonance. And we do that to Jesus when we commit 40 days of prayer and fasting to grow in our love and hunger for him. Yet our hearts are pulled to other lovers. The tolerance for other sins that do not satisfy. And so what he promises isn't harsh. It's appropriate. He's the righteous one who is holy, just, good. He's faithful and And yet he promises suffering and death to those who do not repent. Mm -hmm. What does he say about Jezebel herself? I have given her time to repent. Mm. These things will come on you unless you repent. And so I took the time just to compare Jesus and Jezebel from Jesus's message to Thyatira here in Revelation. And this is what is revealed about these two lovers. About Jezebel, he, they, it, Jezebel is known as a woman, but what Jesus is getting at here is that it's, she's a human in verse 20. She's a human who misleads into immorality. And even though she was given the opportunity to repent, it's not that she didn't know that she was given the opportunity. It's that she was unwilling to repent. And with that unwillingness comes intense suffering and eventual death. And what does she teach? She teaches Satan's deep secrets. 
But when you put the jealous lover next to this uh, other, you put Jesus next to her, you recognize that he is not just some human or the son of man. He's not just the son of man as how uh, John described him in chapter one, but Jesus inserts, inserts himself here as the son of God. So he's not just a man, he's also God. And he's a God who knows. He's a God who is intolerant of immorality. He's, and yet he's patient, he's merciful, or he is a patient, merciful judge, and he bestows authority. And we'll get there here in a minute. What we thought we were getting whenever we're hearing uh, Satan's deep secrets, Jesus actually gives to you if you are faithful. Let's see that. Jesus says in Revelation 2.26 and on, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, if we remain faithful to him, what he promises is authority. He promises that we will rule and that we will reign with him as his bride, which is a common picture of who we are to him that God gives throughout Scripture. As the love of his life, he wishes to give us authority not just over a household, but over nations. And when he's talking about authority, how many of you in here desire, sometimes we even go after the power that comes with authority because that's what humanity does in sin. We try to usurp power. We try to take power, but yet being connected to the jealous lover of our lives, he promises to give us authority. I love that Karen is here today uh, because Karen has gotten and has given us a glimpse as to the authority over the nations that Jesus promises, that Jesus promises. Being faithful to Jesus's call and the Holy Spirit's leading, uh, Karen left Houston to end up in Dallas, which led her to go to Hawaii that then uh, gave her the opportunity to travel to Vietnam and Germany to bring the love, hope, and good news of Jesus to a people who are otherwise giving themselves away to other lovers. And one day we will rule over those nations with authority. And it's with Jesus' authority, yes, right. not this evil, overpowering, overruling authority, but with authority that is right, that is just, that is merciful, that is good. And we will do so, or we will also do so with the king. Yes. Because later in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus reveals himself as the bright morning star. And so the morning star is the first star that appears the brightest in the darkest of nights to signify that light is approaching. And so Jesus, what he's saying here is that he's going to rise in the darkness, in the darkest of our times. When our love wants to be captured by another and promises that this won't endure forever. 
He knows what we go through each and every day. He knows the times whenever we're tempted to go after others. And he says, in that dark time, remember that if you remain faithful, he who is victorious, I will give you the morning star. Remember me because the light is coming and we will be given the morning star himself, Jesus time with him, not Jezebel, not something that promises suffering or death, but life, righteousness, joy, goodness, faithfulness. So here's my question for ministry time. Who are you pursuing? Who are you pursuing? Are you pursuing Jezebel who leads your love astray into immorality or Jesus who knows you? Who is your first love, Ephesus? Who is the one who died and came back to life for you, Smyrna? Or the one who, also the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, Pergamum, and whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, the jealous lover, Thyatira. By knowing him, he says, the churches will know that he is who searches the hearts and minds. Now, this was a really interesting phrase whenever I came across it that I had to say something to Lauren and Mel while we were uh, in San Francisco, uh, that the way that the ancients would write this or the way that it's also written in Greek and the way that it is mentioned in the Old Testament is that uh, instead of um, hearts and minds, the mind portion is actually rendered uh, literally as the kidneys. And what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is that he searches your heart and your kidneys. Which is this idea that whenever you say, I just feel it in my guts, that means that he knows everything down to the depths of your guts. My guts. By knowing him, the church or the churches or you will know that he is the one who searches your guts. And what, he, he, what will he do? He will repay according to your deeds. Now, that is a strong word, but it's a word that shouldn't cause you to try to make Jesus love you more by doing more because that's impossible. But it should spur you to remain faithful and growing in your love and affection for him who is true to us. He will never leave us. He will never fail us. He will never go after someone else after he calls you his beloved. And yet we do that to him whenever we go after Jezebel herself. Jesus pulls no punches with calling sin for what it is. And he never will. Because he recognizes that what sin does to you is that it takes your eyes off of Jesus. We don't do this anymore, but I remember the days whenever I carried a wallet around because my phone didn't have the ability to um, hold pictures in it. It was a long time ago. So I carried a wallet around that had these little plastic inserts where you would insert a picture. And I still have the very first picture that Lauren gave me whenever her glamour shots picture. Uh, I I have it at my desk. And I found it the other day, but uh, I used to keep that and you can still see kind of the places where it was scratched off because of the 
let's put it bluntly, the moisture of my body just kind of made it stick to the plastic. And so whenever I took it out, it just kind of peeled off. But the point is, the point is, is that whenever there were times that, um, uh, and, and what those are meant is that whenever forgetfulness starts settling in, you look at the picture and you say, oh, I remember. Part of the reason why we put pictures in our homes is so that we can remember the different stages of life so that we can also say, look what the Lord has done. Remember the joy and the happiness that exist. And so what Jesus calls us to, even in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and let us put our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, running the race with perseverance running the course marked out for us. How are we to run the race? It's like putting a huge uh, frame of Jesus's face in front of us where we can't look above it or beneath it or to the sides, but instead we are steadfast on his face and we're pursuing after him. So my question is, who are you pursuing? So Lord, We take this time and ask for your Holy Spirit to search our hearts. You who know the hearts and minds of the churches. You said that you would bring judgment on those who are unwilling to repent because you give them time to repent. So, Lord, will you search us right now? Will you search our hearts? Will you search our minds? And if there's another that we are pursuing, God, we repent of that, of that pursuit. We repent of our hearts going astray. And Jesus, we ask that you would be the one that our eyes are steadfast on, the one that we are pursuing. Mm 